Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Modern Farmer, Audiophile Magazine, The Nation, Black Enterprise, Inc., The Chicago Defender, The New York Post, and Billboard Magazine. We're going to start today's African American Hour off with a story from The Nation magazine and its thenation.com website. The title is Forced Prison Labor Was Also on the Ballot. It was published November 10th, 2022 and written by Victoria Law. The subtitle to this story is Voters in Four States, Alabama, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont approved ending the practice of involuntary labor and slavery as punishment for a criminal conviction. Terrence Aikens worked the entire seven years he was incarcerated at the Hardeman Correctional Facility, a private prison contracted to imprison people in Tennessee. You couldn't not have a job, he told the nation. We cooked, we cleaned, we washed the clothes, we taught the classes. The whole operation of the facility was dependent on us. He never earned more than 50 cents an hour. If he or any of the other incarcerated people refused to work, they would be sent to solitary confinement where they would spend 23 to 24 hours each day locked in their cell, losing what little movement they had. It was a powerful incentive to work for pennies on the dollar. This was modern-day slavery, Aikens, now a restorative justice facilitator, said. I was in the same situation as my ancestors. Amy Little was in her second trimester of pregnancy when she was sent to the Tennessee prison for women and assigned to work in the laundry for 34 cents an hour. If you refuse to work, you can lose your sentencing credits or go to solitary confinement, she told the nation. Losing her sentencing credits might have meant still being incarcerated by the time her due date rolled around. Going to solitary would definitely have meant losing phone calls to her parents. It was what I had to look forward to. My dad wasn't in good health. Both Aikens and Little are out of prison and have been working with Free Hearts, a Tennessee nonprofit by and for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women, to pass a measure that appeared on ballots Tuesday that would change the state constitution to prohibit involuntary labor and slavery as punishment for a criminal conviction. Tennessee was one of four states, including Alabama, Oregon, and Vermont, where voters approved ending that practice this week, while a similar measure in Louisiana was rejected. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution eliminated slavery and involuntary servitude with one exception, as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall be duly convicted. It was an exception that led to the mass criminalization of newly freed black people throughout the southern states and the rise of convict leasing. More than a century after the Civil War, 20 states still have similar language in their constitutions. The American Civil Liberties Union estimates that across the country, roughly 800,000 incarcerated people are forced to work for minimal or no pay. Their jobs include planting and harvesting vegetables, picking cotton, making license plates, sewing clothing, and doing maintenance for government buildings, including the prisons in which they are confined. During the pandemic, People in prison in New York made hand sanitizer for 38 cents an hour. Imprisoned workers are not protected under the Fair Labor Standards Act, nor are they allowed to unionize. In 2022, midterm elections was not the first time eliminating compulsory prison labor was on the ballot. In 2018, 
Colorado voters passed an amendment to their state constitution removing the clause allowing slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime. In 2020, Nebraska and Utah voters did the same. This year, however, the California Senate decided against putting a similar initiative on the state ballot after Governor Gavin Newsom's administration warned that it could result in paying incarcerated laborers minimum wage, $15 an hour, costing taxpayers billions of dollars. California employs incarcerated people for a variety of jobs, including fighting the wildfires that ravage the state each summer for as little as 37 cents an hour. The language for each state's initiatives varies. Alabama says, no form of slavery shall exist in this state, and there shall not be any involuntary servitude. While Vermont's removes language allowing an exemption to prohibiting compulsory labor, these seem to be the two most straightforward initiatives. The others, says Candace Bond Theriault, capital T-H-E-R-I-A-U-L-T, Director of Racial Justice Policy and Strategy at Columbia Law School's Center for Gender and Sexuality Law, are less clear. Bond Theriault examined the language of each of these ballot initiatives, their implications, and the impact on pregnant and postpartum incarcerated people in a November policy brief. The Tennessee Initiative, which Free Hearts has been organizing to pass, states that slavery and involuntary servitude are forever prohibited. But the initiative also makes clear that it does not explicitly prohibit a person from working if they have been convicted of a crime. It will give people the right to choose and not to be forced to work, Terrence Aikens explained. In Oregon, the ballot initiative amends the state's constitution to remove language that expressly allows slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime. However, a court, probation, or parole department can order that a person convicted of a crime engage in education, counseling, treatment, community service, or other alternatives to incarceration as part of sentencing for the crime. In Louisiana, which has the nation's highest incarceration rate, the language proposed by Amendment 7 states, slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited, except in the latter case as punishment for crime. It also includes a new subsection stating that it does not apply to the otherwise lawful administration of criminal justice, a subsection that concerns legal advocates. It just changes the exemption itself by making its parameters more vague and confusing, Von Theriot wrote in her issue brief. This proposed language could potentially expand the compulsory labor exemption by, for example, allowing the state to force people who are arrested and charged with a crime but not yet convicted of a crime to perform involuntary labor. This is especially troubling for a state that incarcerates more people before trial than any other state on record. The revised language also troubled the amendment's original sponsor, Democratic State Representative Edmund Jordan, who told the advocate that the wording had become so confused that he was urging voters to oppose the amendment. Other advocates, including those who have been forced to work in the state's punishing prison fields, disagree. This is disingenuous at best and intellectually dishonest at worst, stated Curtis Davis, the executive director of Decarcerate Louisiana, at a virtual press conference last month. If slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited, period, then the otherwise lawful activity of the criminal justice system would be something other than the two outlawed first parts of our amendment. 
Von Theriot's brief also examines the amendment's potential effects on incarcerated people, particularly people of color who are pregnant or postpartum and are still required to work with little respite or accommodations or risk punishment. Although no government agency gathers statistics on pregnancies and birth outcomes behind bars, Advocacy and research on reproductive wellness of incarcerated people, which researched reproductive health care behind bars, collected 12 months of data from 22 state prison systems, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, six jails, and three juvenile justice systems, representing approximately 57% of women in prisons and 5% of women in jails. They found that approximately 4% of people entering state and federal prisons and 3% of people entering jails did so while pregnant. Little was in prison five years before ARRWIP asked the Tennessee prison system for its data on pregnancy. She recalled that the hourly 34 cents from her laundry job helped offset the cost of phone calls and medical care, but was nowhere near covering the expenses. Not to mention that prison jobs offer few, if any, accommodations for pregnant workers. Little recall that while she was exempted from lifting heavy things, some days her feet were so swollen that it hurt to walk. There were days that I'd have called out sick if I could have called out, she recalled. In prison, however, there are no sick days and refusing to work could have jeopardized her release date. Little was released weeks before giving birth, sparing her the indignity of potentially being handcuffed and shackled while in labor. She was able to visit her father, by then in a rehabilitation center, and introduce him to his new granddaughter less than two weeks before he died, a visit that would not have been possible had she refused to work and her release date were postponed. Still, Reflecting on her time in prison and the hours she was forced to work in the prison's laundry, Little asked, how freely can consent be given in these circumstances? With the passage of Amendment 3 in Tennessee and similar initiatives in three other states, Little hopes that incarcerated workers can fight for greater protections and rights. Closing the loophole was the first step because it's difficult to assert your rights in a system that can legally enslave you. That was a reading of the story. Forced prison labor was also on the ballot. It appeared at the nation.com website, was written by Victoria Law, and was published November 10th, 2022. The next story on today's African American Hour is from Billboard magazine and its billboard.com website. The title is Robert Gordy who led Motown's publishing division during prime years, dies at 91. It was written by Adam White and was published October 26, 2022. The subtitle to the story is, From 1965 until 1985, Barry Gordy's little brother helped grow Joe Bet Music from a holding company for copyrights into a music publishing force. Joe Bet is spelled capital J-O-B-E-T-E. Robert Louis Gordy Sr., younger brother of Motown Records founder Barry Gordy and chief executive for many years of the company's successful music publishing division, died October 21st at age 91. He passed away from natural causes, according to his family, at his home in Marina del Rey, California. The youngest of eight siblings, Gordy enjoyed a little-noticed music career as a recording engineer and songwriter before taking command of Motown's Joe Bet Music in 1965. 
His ability to succeed at whatever he attempted or that I threw his way amazed me over the years, said Barry Gordy in a statement, noting that he was deeply saddened by his brother's death. He was absolutely the best little brother anyone could ever hope for, Gordy added. I will miss his love, his support, and his loyalty. Born July 15, 1931 in Detroit, Robert Gordy followed his elder brother into boxing, then moved into music circles such as the city's Flame Show Bar. Sister Gwen held the popular club's photo concession where he operated the darkroom. In his autobiography, Barry Gordy recalled visiting the Flame with Robert to see Billie Holiday perform. Twenty years later, the younger Gordy played a character in Lady Sings the Blues, Motown's production of the Holiday biopic. In 1958, Gordy co-wrote and recorded Everyone Was There under the name Bobby Cayley, capital K-A-Y-L-I. Leased on Carlton Records, the lightweight pop song referencing recent hits such as Peggy Sue and Yakety Yak became a minor chart success. After his brother started Motown Records, Gordy left a post office job to join the venture, initially working for the in-house engineer Mike McLean. At that time, he was building the first 8-track machine in the East, Gordy later explained. I put together the electronics, learned how to read the schematics, helped with the writing, and so on. He went on to become the company's first studio engineer before working for the Quality Control Department. Reflecting its founder's songwriting roots, Motown operated its own music publishing arm from the start. When Joe Bent manager Lucy Wakefield, capital L-O-U, C.Y.E. died prematurely in 1965, Robert Gordy sought the job. When Lucy died, in fact, Barry first rejected my offer to go into Joe Bet, he recalled in 1980. What do you know was his reaction? But I said, believe me, I'll learn. Motown's explosive success from 1964 onwards with the Supremes and other acts made Joe Bet a substantial revenue source, capitalizing on the talents of writers Smokey Robinson, Holland Dozier Holland, Norman Whitfield, and Barrett Strong, among others. Jobet opened its own professional department in 1966, securing covers and expanding the catalog's reach. Among its most popular titles to this day, My Girl, Dancing in the Street, I Heard It Through the Grapevine, The Tears of a Clown, You Are the Sunshine of My Life, What's Going On, and For Once in My Life. Earnings continued to grow as stars such as Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye evolved into self-sufficient, influential songwriters. By 1971, with Robert Gordy promoted to vice president and general manager, the division had 5,000 copyrights under its roof and 100 writers under contract. He joined the board of the National Music Publishers Association and actively participated in industry seminars and conferences. He retired from the post in 1985. One of the main values of our catalog, Gordy once said, is that it has stood the test of time. When Britain's EMI Group acquired half of Joe Bed in 1997, the sale price of $132 million proved that to be true. EMI bought the balance seven years later for $187 million. In his 1994 memoir, To Be Loved, Barry Gordy wrote, So, Robert, I'd like to thank you for moving Joe Bet from a holding company for our copyrights into a highly profitable, competitive international publishing company, keeping us number one for many years, and also for being my little brother. That was a reading of the obituary 
from the Billboard.com website, Robert Gordy, who led Motown's publishing division during prime years, dies at 91. It was written by Adam White and was published October 26, 2022. The next story in today's African American Hour is from the New York Post newspaper. The title is, New York to pay $36 million to men exonerated in Malcolm X killing. It was published October 30th, 2022. The city of New York is settling lawsuits filed on behalf of two men who were exonerated last year for the 1965 assassination of Malcolm X, agreeing to pay $26 million for the wrongful convictions which led to both men spending decades behind bars. The state of New York will pay an additional $10 million. David Shannes, an attorney representing the men, confirmed the settlements on Sunday. Muhammad Aziz, Khalil Islam, and their families suffered because of these unjust convictions for more than 50 years, said Shanees in an email. The city recognized the grave injustices done here, and I commend the sincerity and speed with which the Comptroller's Office and the Corporation Council moved to resolve the lawsuits. Shanees said the settlements send a message that police and prosecutorial misconduct caused tremendous damage, and we must remain vigilant to identify and correct injustices. Last year, a Manhattan judge dismissed the convictions of Aziz, now 84, and Islam, who died in 2009, after prosecutors said new evidence of witness intimidation and suppression of exculpatory evidence had undermined the case against the men. Then-District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. apologized for law enforcement's serious, unacceptable violations of law and the public trust. The New York City Law Department, through a spokesperson, said Sunday it stands by Vance's opinion that the men were wrongfully convicted and the financial agreement brings some measure of justice to individuals who spent decades in prison and bore the stigma of being falsely accused of murdering an iconic figure. Shanice said over the next few weeks, the settlement documents will be signed and the New York court that handles probate matters will have to approve the settlement for Islam's estate. The total $36 million will be divided equally between Aziz and the estate of Islam. Aziz and Islam, who maintained their innocence from the start in the 1965 killing at Upper Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom, were paroled in the 1980s. Malcolm X gained national prominence as the voice of the Nation of Islam, exhorting black people to claim their civil rights by any means necessary. His autobiography, written with Alex Haley, remains a classic work of modern American literature. Near the end of Malcolm X's life, he split with the Black Muslim Organization and after a trip to Mecca, started speaking about the potential of racial unity. It earned him the ire of some of the Nation of Islam who saw him as a traitor. He was shot to death while beginning a speech February 21, 1965. He was 39. Aziz and Islam, then known as Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson, and a third man were convicted of murder in March 1966. They were sentenced to life in prison. The third man, Muhajid Abdul Halim, also known as Talmadge Hayer and Thomas Hagen, admitted to shooting Malcolm X, but said neither Aziz nor Islam was involved. The two offered alibis and no physical evidence linked them to the crime. 
The case hinged on eyewitnesses, although there were inconsistencies in their testimony. Attorneys for Aziz and Islam said in complaints that both Aziz and Islam were at their homes in the Bronx when Malcolm X was killed. They said Aziz spent 20 years in prison and more than 55 years living with the hardship and indignity attendant to being unjustly branded as a convicted murderer of one of the most important civil rights leaders in history. Islam spent 22 years in prison and died still hoping to clear his name. That was a reading of the article, New York to pay $36 million to men exonerated in Malcolm X killing. It appeared in the New York Post newspaper and was published October 30th, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour is from the Florida Star newspaper and it's the FloridaStar.com website. The title is Attorney Ben Crump Files Lawsuit on Behalf of User of Chemical Hair Straightening Products. It was written by Stacy M. Brown and was published October 29th, 2022. Researchers have discovered that hair products used predominantly by black women are likely to contain hazardous chemicals with endocrine-disrupting and carcinogenic properties. Armed with that information and research by the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, civil rights attorney Ben Crump joined forces with lawyer Deandra DeBro-Zimmerman to file a lawsuit against beauty products giant L'Oreal USA. Crump and Zimmerman filed the suit on behalf of Jenny Mitchell, a woman with no family history of cancer, but who received a uterine cancer diagnosis after years of using L'Oreal products. The lawyers declared that the defendants also would include entities that assisted in the development, marketing, and sale of the defective products, including Motions, Dark and Lovely, Olive Oil Relaxer, and Organic Root Stimulator. Black women have long been told they must use chemical hair straightening products to meet society's standards, Crump declared. Companies took advantage of this and marketed their dangerous products to women without any regard for the serious health risks. We need justice. Crump said Mitchell started using the products around 2000 and continued until 2022. In August 2018, Mitchell, with no family history of uterine or other cancer, was diagnosed with uterine cancer and underwent a complete hysterectomy, Crump noted. Mitchell attended mandatory medical appointments every three months for two years and has appointments scheduled every six months. Crump cited a new study published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute this week. The study concluded that frequent users of chemical hair straightening products, defined in the study as more than four uses a year, were more than twice as likely to develop uterine cancer than those who didn't use those products. The National Institute of Health's National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences conducted the study. Uterine cancer rates and deaths are reportedly on the rise in the U.S. Death rates are highest among non-Hispanic black women who are more likely than other populations to be afflicted with aggressive subtypes of uterine cancer, according to the National Institutes of Health, which tracked data from 34,000 women in the SISTER study for more than a decade. Black women have long been the victims of dangerous products specifically marketed to them, said Crump. Black hair has been and always will be beautiful, but black women have been told they have to use these products to meet society's standards. Unfortunately, 
we will likely discover that Miss Mitchell's tragic case is one of the countless cases in which companies aggressively misled black women to increase their profits. Chemical hair straighteners typically contain products associated with higher cancer risk, including formaldehyde, metals, phthalates, and parabens, which may be more easily absorbed by the body through scalp burns and abrasions often caused by chemical straighteners, study authors determine. Zimmerman added that companies like L'Oreal targeted black and Latin women for their own profit motive and without regard to the serious health risks that these hair straightening products cause is a serious wrong that needs to be corrected. We have commenced this important litigation to seek and obtain justice for those women and their families. That was a reading of the article, Attorney Ben Crump Files Lawsuit on Behalf of User of Chemical Hair Straightening Products. It was published October 29th at the FloridaStar.com website and was written by Stacy M. Brown. The next reading on today's program is titled, Damon John is Gone Fishing. The Shark Tank star, FUBU founder, and best-selling author says he has refocused his energy on his family, friends, and health. If only he weren't still tirelessly working every angle. It was written by Kevin J. Ryan and appeared in the November 2022 edition of Inc. Magazine. That is I-N-C, period. Damon John hooks a live squid onto a fishing line and casts into the Pacific. It's early in Los Angeles. His sunglasses reflect the last remnants of the morning fog. Fishing has been one of John's favorite pastimes since he was a kid, something he still makes time for while juggling Shark Tank appearances, investing in startups, and running the apparel brand FUBU, which he created as a young hustler in Queens, New York, back in the 1990s. Holding the rod with one hand, he flashes the face of his Apple Watch. His sleep app reveals that he slept for three hours and seven minutes last night. A decent amount, he says, but less than his preferred four hours. I didn't sleep much longer, but I'm exhausted to the point of nausea while he's wide awake. The colorful line graph illustrating his sleep cycle shows he was restless for the second half of the night. He's convinced that if he'd hit the gym when he got back to his hotel at midnight, he would have slept more soundly. The California coastline rises and falls through the haze while John reels in a fish, then another, and then another, most of them too small to keep. As the morning sun emerges and beats down on us, I log my first and only catch of the day and start to feel hot saliva forming in my mouth. While the captain unhooks my fish, I move to the far side of the boat and throw up my breakfast into the ocean. John doesn't see this, but when I sit next to him a few minutes later, glistening with cold sweat, he takes a look at me. You good? I tell him what just happened, and he burst out laughing. We're putting you through the ringer, he says. Welcome to the life. This is the world of Damon John. Always moving, never dull. Since his daughter's birth in 2016 and his thyroid cancer diagnosis the following year, John has been less involved with FUBU's day-to-day and more focused on family and health. Recently, he cut back on drinking and began watching his diet. He walks an astounding 25,000 steps most days. The 53-year-old is more conscious of his work-life balance and more aware of his mortality. But that doesn't mean he's slowed down. For him, a more balanced life looks like this. 
taping Shark Tank and advising the founders in his portfolio, working on a soon-to-launch podcast he's hosting, trying to develop a scripted miniseries, a top-secret appearance on The Masked Singer, throwing an event for black entrepreneurs in New York City, and appearances at more than a dozen business events across the country, including the Incorporated 5000 Conference and Gala. That's just a one-month span in early fall. As I would learn after spending one sleep-deprived weekend with him, it's a lifestyle that's too much to handle for a healthy person two decades his junior. Back on the boat, we're about to head to shore when John finally nabs a calico bass that's a keeper. He unhooks it and it falls to the deck. He scrambles to grab it, but it slips through a drain into the ocean. That's okay, he declares. I'm going to catch a bigger one right now. He tosses his line back into the water. Less than a minute later, his rod starts to bend. It's a beauty, a sand bass, 20 inches and a solid 7 pounds, a keeper. The boat staff ooh and ah. I told you, he announces. They offer to prepare it for him, but he puts on a pair of gloves, sets the fish down on a flat surface, grabs a knife, and fillets it himself, which shouldn't come to any surprise to anyone who knows Damon John. None of this was part of the plan. I was supposed to meet John in Miami, the city he now calls home with his wife, Heather, and their six-year-old daughter, Minka. They recently moved to Miami full-time from New York's Catskill Mountains so Minka could start first grade there. John is still the CEO of FUBU, but fashion is a fickle business, and the company has shrunk since its late 90s peak, when it did $350 million in annual revenue. His work there now revolves mostly around partnerships and licensing deals. John made a full recovery from his cancer scare during which he had a stage two growth and half his thyroid removed. It was a frightening experience, especially with a new baby at home. He's down 40 pounds this year and says he feels great. I was to visit John in his newly restructured world and observe how he's stepping back from the chaos of founder life. That was the plan, at least. Ten minutes after I checked into my South Beach hotel, John called me from Los Angeles and explained that a tropical storm, which later became Hurricane Ian, was due to hit Florida in a few days. If he flew home, he might not be able to make it back to California for a speaking engagement early the next week. The call ended with John deciding he was staying in L.A. When I finally meet up with John at his hotel in Beverly Hills nearly 24 hours later, I walk in just as family time, the remote version, is beginning. Heather and Minka appear on the screen of John's tablet computer, and Minka calls out her dad for being late. I was five minutes late, he protests. Father and daughter play a series of games, including a memory game and a collaborative jigsaw puzzle. At the end of their 15 minutes together, John explains to her how he was supposed to be there this weekend, but can't be. Daddy's going to see you in just 10 days, he says. What, she asks? I know, John says then tries to raise her spirits by reminding her that she can build sandcastles with her new beach toys. John is determined to learn from the mistakes of his first marriage. He and his ex-wife, with whom he has two daughters now in their 20s, divorced in 2003. He admits he wasn't around as much as he should have been, that there wasn't any semblance of balance. These days, he's almost as busy, but if there's a gap on his calendar, he'll fly home across time zones to see his wife and daughter, even if it's for as little as a few hours. Growing up in the working-class community of Hollis, Queens, John learned lessons from each of his parents, albeit vastly different ones. 
His father was a computer programmer with a mathematical mind. John has described him as both absent and manipulative. He and John's mother divorced when John was 12. Even at that age, he says he knew he didn't want to see his dad again, and he told him as much. The two cut off all communication, and John separated himself from his father's entire side of the family. His mother, meanwhile, was his rock. She kept a watchful eye. At a time when crack was ravaging American cities, she made drugs seem uncool by offering to try them with him. I could have been a crackhead all by myself, but she ruined that for me, he jokes. She also gave John a valuable piece of advice. Your day job won't make you rich. Your homework will. John's day job in 1992 was as a server at Red Lobster. That's when he decided to try to replicate a winter hat he'd seen in a music video. It's also the start of the founding legend of FUBU, now a part of startup lore. Using the sewing skills his mom taught him, John created a batch of hats and offered them for $20 a piece in front of a local mall. They sold out in a few hours. Suspecting he was on to something, he came up with a brand new name, an acronym for For Us, By Us. Brought aboard three friends from the neighborhood and started slapping the FUBU logo onto shirts, hoodies, and hockey jerseys. John's mother let him and his partners use the house as their headquarters. John is convinced that FUBU's early scrappiness was directly correlated with its success. Growing up, he and his mom lived off food stamps and had their electricity cut from time to time. He dumpster-dived and rebuilt bicycles as a side hustle. In FUBU's early days, the co-founders got the word out in part by approaching neighborhood stores and offering to pay them $200 to repaint their graffiti-covered metal pull-down gates with the FUBU logo. 300 establishments throughout Queens agreed. At the time, the area around Hollis was home to hip-hop artists including Run DMC, A Tribe Called Quest, and LL Cool J. The FUBU founders leveraged that fact to hustle their clothes onto the heads and backs of some of the biggest stars of the moment. When they got invited onto the sets of music videos, they gave clothes to the artists just before the camera started rolling. To date, the little clothing company from Hollis has earned more than $8 billion in revenue. In retrospect, it's easy to see how all the circumstances of John's upbringing added to his particular brand of success. But in the moment, he couldn't have known. John learned from executive coach Jay Abraham, an early mentor with whom he's still close, that everything in the world is a source of something that you can find and make work for you. It might be that another brand's approach to marketing is an example for yours, or a person you met is a potential mentor. In any case, John says, the key is how you find those untapped opportunities. It's something he has learned to do better than almost anyone else. To walk along the palm-lined streets of Beverly Hills with Damon John is to be recognized. If it's anonymity you seek, do not spend the day with the man. One woman asks for a photo with him to which he politely obliges. You're my favorite shark, yells a man walking with his son, and John talks with him for a moment about growing up in New York. Dave Heath, co-founder of Bombas, a direct-to-consumer sock company that brings in more than $100 million in annual revenue, John invested in 2014, marvels at John's habit of engaging with so many of the people who cross his path. It's a key aspect of John's formula for success. If you believe there's potential for opportunity in everything, then you have to experience as much as you can. If I'm at a conference and there are other entrepreneurs there who are just starting up, Heath says, I think about how much more inundated Damon gets and remind myself 
that he would take the time to talk to this person. At one point, during breakfast with a TV writer with whom he's collaborating, John gestures toward me and leans back in his seat. You know what? I just want to watch you two talk about writing, he says. While John gets recognized wherever he goes today, he didn't become a celebrity until he joined Shark Tank in 2009. Since then, fellow shark Barbara Cochran admits he succeeded more than any other shark at turning his presence on the show into a personal brand. He used the platform in a way that none of the rest of us were smart enough to do initially, she says. Cochran adds, he's also the only one who judges people more sharply than I do. She recalls being won over by a contestant on the show, a baker who claimed to be living out of his car. She wanted to invest and ask John to go in with her. Damon said, I'll come in on the deal because you're asking me, recalls Cochran. But I'm telling you, Barbara, don't trust that guy. Cochran, John, and the contestant agreed on terms, but didn't sign any paperwork. Soon after, when the Sharks went to visit the founder, he turned out not to be homeless. In fact, he had a team of lawyers working for him. They pulled out of the deal. Damon said, I told you so, recalls Cochran. I couldn't believe it. How did you see that coming? The answer is John's life experience, a journey that has taken him from humble beginnings to the heights of business. Today, his social circle spans a similar range. Many of his childhood friends have been involved with his companies over the years. He's got real, genuine friendships that he treasures with people up and down the socioeconomic chain, says Abraham. He understands that you can learn wonderful things from anyone. Like a lot of black Americans, John learned the hard way that not everyone shares that belief. At the peak of FUBU's success, he bought several homes around the U.S. and lived in each for a few months at a time. Among them was a waterfront property in Massapequa, an upper-middle-class enclave on Long Island. One day he found a note in his mailbox. You can make all the money you want, but when you're drinking your 40s and listening to your rap, remember that you'll always be an in. He sold the house not long after. John manages to look back on incidents like that with equanimity. Racists and bigots, he believes, cost themselves the opportunity to grow, to learn new things about the world. When you relate to people, you get way more out of life, he says. In October, John will host the third iteration of Black Entrepreneurs Day at Harlem's Apollo Theater. The event will feature appearances from Venus Williams, Shaquille O'Neal, and Spike Lee, among others. John will award 10 black entrepreneurs $25,000 apiece and the opportunity to receive his mentorship. He founded the event in 2020, motivated by the civil unrest following the death of George Floyd. One of the images that has stuck with him from that summer is that of black youths burning businesses in their neighborhoods. A lot of these kids don't have hope, he says. We attach ourselves to things we see the most. And for a lot of kids, that's crime. But if you see people opening businesses, suddenly that becomes an option. Never one to pursue an opportunity lightly, John authored a children's book, Little Damon Learns to Earn, that will publish next year. In it, the main character wants to make money to buy a music poster, so he starts a small business with his friends. The book teaches saving, budgeting, and other financial concepts. John sees Shark Tank playing a similar role. Its time slot gives families something to do together on Friday nights, something that's at once entertaining, educational, and, he hopes, inspiring. It's part of why John has published five other books about entrepreneurship, 
four of them bestsellers and why he does things like show up unannounced at ink events to take questions from attendees. He says he feels a duty to share his life experiences so others can benefit as he has. Wearing a black sequin shirt, a navy blue Yankees cap, and a pair of diamond earrings, John walks toward the entrance of Craig's, a popular West Hollywood restaurant. A TMZ photographer asks for a photo, and John poses. Inside, seated across from John, is his right-hand man, Chauncey Bell, a childhood friend who now serves as a marketing consultant at the Shark Group, the company John founded to provide consulting and infrastructure to his Shark Tank companies. Bell has been sending and receiving texts throughout the night. We're good, he finally announces, adding that it sounds pretty intimate. It turns out to be the rapper Lil Wayne's 40th birthday party, our next stop. My next concern is my clothing, a baby blue and green short sleeve button down I'd brought for Miami, a pair of baggy khakis and white tennis shoes. John reads my mind. We'll tell people you're my accountant, he cracks. A few minutes later, we're on our way to a cozy Italian restaurant called The Nice Guy, where we find, at the center of a crowd in suits and cocktail dresses, Wheezy himself, being serenaded by the R&B artist Keith Sweat. It's Sweat, I learn, who invited John to the party. He comes over after his set and embraces John, and the two speak for a few minutes. Then John scans the crowd for anyone else he might know. When he's satisfied, we're on our way again. Our entire appearance at the party lasts no more than 15 minutes. John explains that he isn't a fan of formal meetings, instead choosing to visit places where those in his circles hang out. It's part of why he's always on the move, hitting various clubs and restaurants until well past midnight, despite not being the partier he once was. It's fun, but it's also good business. The next morning, John and I meet for breakfast. It's 9 a.m. and he says he's already made a dozen phone calls and sent 60 emails. Such hyperactivity, he argues, is hardwired in him. Even if I were to say I'm retiring and I'm going to go fishing every day, well, you know I'd open a little fishing shop somewhere. He's noticed that on the various company boards he's joined in recent years, many of the other members are former entrepreneurs who couldn't sit still in retirement. As a founder, you put in 20 hours a day, not for the money, but because you are passionate about it, he says. It's hard to cut that mentality. He has evolved in other ways over the years, though. John has never before revealed this publicly, but a few years ago, he decided he was ready to connect with his father's other children, two women about his older daughter's ages. They had no idea the man they'd been watching on TV was their brother. John grew close enough to one that he attended her wedding. There he spoke with his father for the first time in nearly 40 years. It was a decision that required the emotional maturity that only comes later in life. He now sees that in cutting out his father, he cut himself off from the chance to know him and understand some of his ways. John hasn't followed up with his father since that day, but he doesn't wish him any ill will. Life is life, he says. It does what it does. If his dad has stuck around, he's realized things would have been different. More structured, perhaps, more conventional, but not necessarily better. I would have probably gone to college. If he had stayed, I probably wouldn't be who I am today. His father's leaving, John believes, opened a door. Little Damon was able to experience the world he wanted to, to create the Damon John that exists today. He sits with this thought for a moment, as if pondering who he really is. Then he crisply moves on to the next order of business. I want to stay healthy and be around to protect my wife, 
my family, my daughters, my mother, my ex-wife, he says. That's my first priority. The second thing is that I want to continue to empower people to change their lives. While I have my health and my family has theirs, I've got to maximize this opportunity. His phone rings. It's Ted Kingsbury, the Shark Group's president, calling for their daily check-in. Tomorrow, John will fly to San Francisco to give a talk at a conference, then is off to events in Virginia Beach and Phoenix and a Good Morning America taping in New York. When he's done with it all, his wife and daughter will be in Miami waiting for him. Maybe then he'll get to relax for a day or two to walk along the beach and build sandcastles. But not yet. That was the article, Damon John is Gone Fishing. It was written by Kevin J. Ryan and appeared in the November 2022 edition of Inc. Magazine. The next reading on today's program is from BlackEnterprise.com. The title is Black Equity. Robert L. Johnson created the most black millionaires in U.S. history after selling BET. It was written by Derek Major and was published October 17, 2022. Black Entertainment Television, BET, founder and former Charlotte Bobcats owner Robert L. Johnson discussed the network's creation and how its sale created numerous black millionaires. Johnson spoke to Black Enterprise CEO and President Earl Butch Graves Jr. at the annual Black Men Excel Summit. The two discussed how Johnson got the idea for BET from Ebony founder John Johnson, no relation, who at the time was making content about the rise of the black middle class. He had his stories in print. It was nationally distributed, but through a magazine. Nobody was doing it in video, and certainly no one was doing it on a national scale to aggregate as many black households because the technology didn't exist. According to Johnson, the revolution of satellite TV changed everything, giving channels the possibility of retaining a national audience. Johnson said he met a man who was working on creating a channel for the elderly. The two men were set to lobby the channel to the Senate Committee on Aging when Johnson took a look at the brochure his partner created. I looked at it and he had all these things. The elderly buy a certain kind of product. The elderly have a certain kind of income. The elderly have a certain set of needs and the elderly are not appropriately projected on television, Johnson said. So I asked him for it and when I got it, I changed everything to black. Black people have a certain kind of need and black people are ignored on television. So I took that and I said, I got to start this thing called BET. Johnson then had to find a small town with cable television to find out if black people were interested in his idea. The BET founder chose Anniston, Alabama, but he still had to find a place in the city to talk to black men. So I looked in the yellow pages and there was a barbershop called Pink Junior's Barbershop. So I called and said, I want to speak to the owner, Johnson recalled. I told him, I'm Bob Johnson, and I'm starting a new cable channel if people would be interested in a black channel if we showed black college football. So he asked the shop, and they all said yes. From there, Johnson, along with partner John Malone, started BET, the first television network designed for black people featuring sports, movies, sitcoms, and original content. BET also was the first African-American company publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Johnson, who had no previous experience in the cable and TV industry, asked Malone for advice in making sure the network worked. 
He said, get your revenues up and keep your costs down, Johnson said. The channel did well in its first years, but didn't turn much revenue until a new and exciting form of entertainment came into the picture. Along the way came music videos and MTV started playing videos, but they wouldn't play black music videos. So I said, there's a chance to play black music videos, and that's where we started. And the thing about it that made BET such a success was the videos were free, Johnson said. So imagine a business where the cable operators pay you to carry a program, the record companies give you the content for free, and the advertisers pay to speak to your audience. In 2001, Johnson sold BET to Viacom and BET employees, and in doing so, created a large number of black millionaires who Johnson gave equity in BET. To me, that's what you do as a founder. You bring your people in and give them a significant piece of commitment to opportunity so that they feel that you have a commitment to their success as much as you have to your own success. That was a reading of an article from BlackEnterprise.com. The title, Black Equity, Robert L. Johnson Created the Most Black Millionaires in U.S. History After Selling BET. It was written by Derek Major and appeared at the BlackEnterprise.com website on October 17, 2022. Next is the story. This organization aims to provide black farmers with capital. It appeared at the ModernFarmer.com website on November 6th and was written by Deborah Freeman. The subtitle to this story is, The Black Farmer Fund is working to redefine wealth and health in New York communities by investing in black agricultural systems. When farmer activist Olivia Watkins and Karen Washington met at a conference in 2017, they recognized there weren't any programs geared towards black farmers that addressed their economic needs. So they set out to fill the gap. Farmers have one chance in a season to get it right. There are great organizations educating black farmers, but there was not an organization pooling capital and giving it through a grant or loan to black folks to close the racial wealth gap, says Watkins. There's no incentive to black farmers to feed black communities at all. While most people know that enslaved Africans were brought to America in order to do the hard work of building a country, perhaps it is less well known that not only was their physical labor desired, but also their agricultural knowledge and skill in cultivating the land. After the Civil War, African Americans continued to grow crops either as sharecroppers or by owning the land they farmed outright. One hundred years ago, they made up 14% of the country's farmers. Today, black farmers represent only 1.4% of the industry. The amount of black farmers to the United States has been on the decline for decades. According to the USDA, the number of black farmers peaked in 1910 when they owned an estimated 16 to 19 million acres. That number has dropped to less than 3 million acres today. Although there is a variety of factors for this decline, the major causes are systemic governmental racism and lack of access to finances. Not long after their meeting, Watkins and Washington launched the Black Farmer Fund, which welcomed its first cohort of recipients this year. The fund provides capital and resources such as business coaching to black farmers. The organization aims to build community power and wealth 
while working to shift and change the way food justice happens. It's important work because, according to Watkins, the average income for an American farmer is $42,000 per year, while the average income for a black farmer is a negative $906 per year. The economic disparity creates larger issues than just a lack of black farmers. This is why there is food apartheid in certain communities, says Watkins. This is why we are so disconnected from our food, because our communities are not producing food, and the ones that are producing are struggling. The Black Farmer Fund was especially meaningful during the pandemic, when black farmers were hit hard economically. Watkins saw the need to create an emergency relief fund where farmers could access capital quickly. So they launched a special grant to pay down personal or business debt, assist with labor costs, or purchase equipment and infrastructure such as greenhouses. Farming is a challenging experience. There were a lot of emergencies happening in our community and we didn't want people to dip into their investment capital, says Watkins. Additionally, a rapid response fund for farmers who were not in the fund's portfolio was created in order to distribute funding on a wider scale. The level of thoughtfulness and dedication is part of what attracted farmer Denise Scott of 716 CBD and Black House Growers to the Black Farmer Fund, part of the first cohort of recipients that includes farmers, herbalists, and collectives from across New York State. Scott compared the Black Farmer Fund staff to feeling like family. As you start to meet people behind the scenes, you start to build up a family with them. Some of these people have stayed in my home, she says. We grew up in this as a family. Located on the New York side of Niagara Falls, Scott 716 CBD is a holistic healing space where she makes and sells butters, tinctures, salts, and scrubs. Her micro farm, Black House Growers, occupies just one-tenth of an acre, and every inch is covered with mint, chamomile, tomatoes, cabbage, celery, cucumber, peppers, kale, and collard. She plans to add flowers and sweet potatoes, too. Ultimately, Scott wants to own 100 acres and give some of the land to the Black Farmer Fund. It always goes back to the earth, says Scott. When you start talking about farm to table, that's sustaining on your own. Scott has historical family ties to farming as well. Her father was a farmer in North Carolina, and when she started learning more and more about food justice and shortages, she knew she needed to start farming herself. I started looking at black people being able to sustain and how were we able to sustain prior to this. Everyone's mother had a garden in the backyard, she says. I went back to what my ancestors did for centuries. The Black Farmer Fund's first cohort also includes Black Yard Farm Collective, a collective of black farmers that creates space for the community to learn about farming, Trinity Farms, a small fruit orchard in Clintondale, New York, and Farm Fresh Caribbean Growers, which produces hard-to-find Caribbean produce in New York. In total, the organization provided funding for eight farms and the growing demand for education about farming in local communities and the broadening of the agricultural space to black farmers emphasizes that there is still more work to be done. Even with all the obstacles that black farmers face, there is still abundant hope. Black farmers are incredibly resilient, gifted, and talented people, says Watkins. There is that ancestral lineage of being agricultural experts in sustaining communities. That was the article, 
This organization aims to provide black farmers with capital. It was written by Deborah Freeman, and it appeared at the modernfarmer.com website on November 5, 2022. Our final reading of the day is another book review from audiophilemagazine.com. The title of the book is The Black Period on Personhood, Race, and Origin. The audiobook was written and read by Hafisa Augustus Jeter. It takes about 10.75 hours to listen to and falls into the category of biography. Poet Hafisa Augustus Jeter narrates her debut memoir with a deep assuredness that draws listeners in from the start. Her voice has a lifting rhythmic quality to it. Her long pauses make her prose sound like poetry. This deliberate narration serves to amplify the serious nature of her work. In a series of nonlinear recollections about her life as the daughter of a Nigerian Muslim mother and a black American father, Jeter explores what she calls the black period. The turn of phrase represents the many sacred spaces that she and others have created in which black culture, joy, art, and community flourish outside of white hegemony. Blending personal memoir, social commentary, art criticism, and history, this beautifully performed audiobook is as moving as it is thought-provoking. That was a review of the audiobook, The Black Period, on personhood, race, and origin. The audiobook was written and read by Hafisa Augustus Jeter. This review appeared at the audiophilemagazine.com website for the November 2022 edition of Audiophile Magazine. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.